Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us today through your son Jesus and through your given gift of the Spirit to take his words and receive them as we ought to. Guard us, Lord, from the ever-familiar trap of self-deception and self-justification to think that this somehow doesn't apply to me because I've not committed big sins. And help us to see that statement in itself as a big sin. And so we're asking you to probe the depths of our hearts and drive um, to discover the sins of our hearts so that you, Jesus, can set us free. I pray that today you'd fill us with both conviction and hope. And, Lord, that you do that simultaneously, or for some people, just conviction today, so they could feel the weight of what they need to hear from you. And others, Lord, just an overabundance of hope. I pray, God, that you'd meet our needs. Only you, Lord, can take this hard text and apply it in appropriate and helpful and holy ways. And so we trust you to do that, and we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm a bit curious, did you have an opportunity this week to be a peacemaker somewhere? Hmm. Or um, maybe to um, fight off the temptation to uh, put your little light under a bushel and you said, no, not going to do that. Maybe you sang that children's song with new vigor this week. I I wonder if you had the opportunity to show someone some mercy, maybe while driving, for instance. For those of you who weren't here last week, I used an illustration of how mercy uh, shown um, to others can make a beautiful statement about your God-centeredness and um, was encouraging you to, you know, instead of just letting one car in, let two in. Well, Sunday evening, one of our staff wives came to me and said, Mark, you have to retract your application point. And I said, why? He said, because as we were leaving the church parking lot, cars were backed up because people were letting five and six people in. And it just completely messed up the flow of traffic. Your application point, although good and godly, was really making life hard. So (laughs) that made my day. For two reasons. First, because it demonstrates what I already know, and that is that you as a church take seriously, at least for 35 minutes or so, to apply the word. And, and, and you have this innate desire to say, yes, let's take the word and find ways to apply it and make it live. But the second thing is I love the practicality of the section of scripture that we're in. I love how real and like down to earth and, 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 and how it just hits the road that we live. And what we're seeing in Matthew 5 to 7 is that getting real is really important. In fact, the more I get into this text, the more I just have this, this, this deep sense of the fact that heaven and hell are hanging in the balance. That we are dealing with critical matters of the soul. We're dealing with whether or not we are real. And, and so I want to invite you to join our staff and our elders and pray that God would use this whole series to help us at a variety of levels to grow, to get real. My my vision for this is that we would be able to look back on this summer and see 3,000 people who, in a variety of ways, heard from God and during this summer could look back and say, you know what, I'm not as superficial as what I was. 
Thanks be to God. You see, I think that superficial religion is a part of all of us. The question is, to what extent has it taken root in our lives? I introduce you to the subject of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount by using this phrase, the ethics of grace, because to me it is a great description of the outcome of the Sermon on the Mount in our lives. It's the ethics of grace because it is the way in which the overflow of God's invasion of my heart now creates these righteousness acts, these righteous acts or a, a perspective on righteousness that I wouldn't have had Jesus not invaded my soul. And so the assaulting of superficial religion comes by virtue of Jesus' shocking, in-your-face, and provocative message. And I call this the ethics of grace because this sermon certainly involves actions or ethics, but they are not a new law. Rather, what Jesus is talking about are the products of a life or a heart that has been changed. And here's the key, from the inside out. And that's the difference. It is the ethics of God's grace flowing in and through us. It's about the character that he produces, the heart that changes who you are. So it's not just that you change the outside, but that Jesus comes, invades your soul, radically changes who you are on the inside, and this stuff just comes out because of what he's done. Now, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16 is an introduction or a summary The Beatitudes were a summary of what Jesus is going to tell us. And you can think of verse 17 of Matthew 5 as a major change. What we're going to do is spend the months of July and September talking about this major change and this application. The reason July and September are not August, because just a reminder that in August we're going to spend about five weeks talking about how to kill relationships and irritate people. And that's a, a sermon series on relationships, about what does it mean to apply some of these things as it relates to the Sermon on the Mount. But in July and September, we're going to talk about what real kingdom living looks like. And what's going to happen is that the Beatitudes have served as an introduction, and now Jesus is going to get very personal and very practical. This section that we're going to look at in July and September is designed to show us one very important thing, and here it is. Namely, that the seeds of superficial religion are sown in the soil of self-deception and self-justification. It's a very important statement. Because everything that comes next from July and September will be informed by this statement. This is, in my view, what Jesus is driving at. That the seeds of superficial religion, it doesn't just happen. You don't just become superficial. It's just like, poof, and you're superficial. It means that there is something that's going on. And the soil that those seeds are planted in are loaded with self-deception and self-justification. It's the person who says, come on, I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anybody. Or, come on, I'm not that bad. At least I've never committed adultery. And that soil of self-deception and self-justification, that is where self-deceived, self-justifying, superficial religious people come from. And Jesus wants us to see that this doesn't just happen. So what's going to happen? Jesus is going to go after this with a gracious tenacity. I say gracious and tenacity because he's going to be um, direct, especially today. 
And you need to know that his directness is gracious. He, he, he wants to help us see that there, there's reason for hope, but hope in him. He aims to show us the kind of righteousness that is real. So today we're going to look at two things. First is, what is this righteousness that's established by Jesus? What is this thing that he establishes? And then secondly, we're going to see two examples of this, how Jesus works it out in anger and lust. Now, righteousness that Jesus fulfills is a principle that's established in verses 17 to 20. It begins with this statement in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what Jesus is going to do in this section, verses 17 to 20, is establish a particular principle. And then he's going to apply it in six different ways. And this morning we're looking at two of those examples, anger and lust. But he's going to apply it to divorce and apply it to giving and judging. He's going to apply it to a number of other areas. But today we're just simply looking at anger and lust. And those six examples will begin, all of them, with this statement. You have heard that it was said. And then he explains what was said and then what he says and then how you ought to apply it. So again, Jesus is taking this principle... And then he's going to show us examples of how it works out. And then what is the principle? The principle is this, that Jesus fulfills what real righteousness is. He himself fulfills what real righteousness is. He is the embodiment of it. He is the goal of it. He's the end product of it. That Jesus is teaching and his life, his whole person, is the fulfillment of all righteousness. That we need look no other place other than Jesus to know what real righteousness is all about. So, the implications of that statement are found in verses 17 to 20. The first is that Jesus is the end or the goal of the law, not the abolisher of the law. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, I came to fulfill them. So he's saying that he's the end product, the goal, the culmination of what the law is all about. Secondly, he tells us that he is the definitive interpreter of the law. If all of the law and the prophets are about him, then he has the right and the authority to define for us and help us understand what God was really driving at. He's going to interpret what God's real intent was in these commands. And then third, he's going to show us that his righteousness is the real righteousness, not the fake and damning righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, first... The word fulfill and the fact that Jesus calls himself the end or goal of the law, not the abolisher. What does that mean? The word fulfill in verse 17 is a really important word. It's it's the central word as it relates to this principle. It's the fulcrum upon which his argument turns. Jesus Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it." it. The word fulfill plays an important part in Matthew's gospel. Where he says, and this happened in order to fulfill something in the past. What does it mean? Here's what it means. It has the meaning of something coming into being to which the scriptures had previously pointed. So it means that something is here in which the scriptures has, uh, had, had promised or pointed towards and that Jesus now is bringing the full picture from black and white to color. He says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I don't want to assume that you know what he means by law and the prophets. The word law 
is this idea of the commandments of God. That's the Ten Commandments, which summarized 600 plus other commandments of God. And he gave them to the people of Israel, gave them to culture, in order to show us how high his standard of righteousness is. And Jesus says that I've not come to abolish the law, nor have I come to abolish the prophets. The prophets were those folks who wrote and told Israel what God wanted them to know and also told them what was coming in the future. And so Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. What Jesus is saying here is that he and his teaching are exactly what the law and the prophets were pointing towards. This is very important. If you miss this principle, you won't understand what he says in the next six examples. It means that Jesus is the substance, the law and the prophets are the shadow. It means that Jesus has not come to abolish the prophets, but rather, or the law, but to identify himself as the end product or the goal of them. His intent is to show them that the divine intention of the law and the prophets was to point them to himself, and now that he's here, he's bringing them into full picture. So it's not that the law of the prophets are bad, but they aren't the full picture of what is real and how things are. And it's important that you see that Jesus and his teaching supersedes or fulfills or brings into maturity the full extent of what God intended. That Jesus is the full-grown law. Let me illustrate this for you to hopefully just kind of cement this in your mind and heart. Imagine that um, I, I wrote an article and then the magazine called and said, we'd like a picture of you to put in the article. Now, do any of you have pictures of your past that you wish could just go away? Well, my kids found a picture of me a few weeks ago, and they kept asking me, Dad, how do we scan pictures into the computer? And I was like, why do you want to know? They're like, no reason, no reason, no reason. And I knew enough to start probing. And I'm like, I lifted up the, uh, the, the thing, uh, the, the, the thing that goes on top of the scanner, and I was like, oh! And they're like, yeah! <laughs> so, so we're like family, right? Do you want to see the picture? All right, so imagine I send them this picture, okay? <laughs> That's sharp, isn't it? So I was, I was showing them this picture again last night, and one of my boys said, Dad, how much money did it cost to fix your teeth? So, <laughs> so imagine I send them this dorky picture, short shorts, you know, pulled up socks and everything else. I mean, I'm 16 years old right there. No, I'm not. I'm telling you. Imagine I send them this picture, and they're going to say, no, 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 we don't want a picture of your childhood, we want a picture of who you are now. So this was who I was, in fact, that's who I am. It's a fair representation of the past, but that doesn't picture who I am now, thank goodness. That's not who I am. And that's the idea of the law and the prophet as it relates to Christ. Get that picture off, okay? So... It is that, that this that Jesus' teaching now becomes the full embodiment, the maturity. It becomes a grown man's righteousness. It's, it's the full intention of what God had in mind. The reason that's important is because what Jesus is going to drive at is the, the heart that was behind the law. So he's not just creating more law. That's not what he's doing. He's actually getting to the intention. He, he's not going up. He's going under. He's getting to the heart of what God is really driving at when he said, you shall not murder. The second implication relates to Jesus' authority. Since Jesus is the goal, and since the law and the prophets are pointing to him, 
then he becomes the definitive interpreter of what the law is all about. That's why Jesus can say this, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he can also say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, it's almost as though he just does what he says you can't do. But he can say that because he's the definitive interpreter of the law, explaining the real intent that God was driving at when he gave the law. So he's calling his followers to see the more challenging, discerning will of God that underlies the legal rulings of the Old Testament law. He's trying to help them see there are things underneath here that are really important that you don't fully understand. Now, this doesn't mean does not mean that Jesus is suggesting that the Old Testament law is still in effect the way that it was in Israel, even before he came. Jesus himself indicated that love is the fulfillment of the law in Matthew 22. Even the early church took the law and they applied it differently to Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. Paul himself said that once Christ had come, that we are no longer under a guardian of the law. So what happens is that Paul and Jesus identify that the work of Christ, his coming, and the presence of the Spirit now elevate or highlight that what's underneath the law, namely faith and love. So what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to tell you what God's intent was underneath these commandments. And what the Pharisees did is they built laws on top of commandments and they missed the heart of what God really intended. Finally, Jesus makes a stunning statement about the fake righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And in verse 19, he says something very interesting. If whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is going on here? Here's what's happening. Ironically, the religious rulers of Jesus' day created laws on top of laws in order to prevent people from disobeying God's law in the Word. So they created laws on top of laws. And what they did is by creating this supra-law, they actually missed the heart of the law and ended up relaxing real obedience. This, my friends, is the trap of legalism. It is that you create more rules, more rules, more rules, so you can keep the more rules feeling great about yourself, meanwhile neglecting the very heart of what the rule was about in the first place. And so what you end up doing is create rules, and you end up relaxing the rules that God wants. And that's the tragic irony of what happens with religiously superficial people. It creates a system of rules that you feel like you're righteous when actually you're sinning more. You feel good about tithing spices, but you neglect mercy and justice and faithfulness. That's the problem. And that's why Jesus can say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. You have to feel the shock of what Jesus is saying here. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most spiritual people of the day. And when he says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds there, the people must have thought, I can't do this. More righteous than them. And the problem was, is he's talking about a category of righteousness that they don't even see. Which is why he illustrates it with six different examples. Unless righteousness exceeds what you know about the religious leaders, you will not enter the kingdom. And his point is shocking. Here it is. 
that hell will be filled with superficial religious people, people who are guilty of self-deception and self-justification. Now, that is a stunning statement for Jesus to make. This, this is probably one of the boldest things that Jesus could say. I have not come to abolish, I have come to fulfill. And unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. And that is why he then gives six different examples to make his point crystal clear. Jesus is aiming for the heart. He's aiming for people who would say, well, listen, man, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. And what Jesus does, he goes after that, this external, self-justifying, self-deceived thing. And he states the command. You've heard it said. Then he explains the intent, but I say to you, and then he gives examples of radical action. For example, when, when it relates to anger, leave your gift and go and be, re- be reconciled. As it relates to lust, tear out your eye. And in these two cases, Jesus wants to make it very clear that to simply say, I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer, does not make you okay. So, Jesus begins with the issue of murder. He states the command in verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says two things here. The first that he says is, is that being angry with someone puts you in jeopardy of judgment. And then the second thing he says is abusive speech is also equally sinful and worthy of punishment. Jesus warns us about insults or statements like, you fool! The kind of statements that come from a heart filled with anger towards someone. Now, immediately, some of you in your mind are thinking, well, isn't there such thing as a righteous anger? And, 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 and what if the person is a fool? Is it ever appropriate? And I, I understand all of that, okay? But, I, but I, I get so tired of that conversation. Can we just put it aside and just hear what Jesus says? And receive the reality of the fact that he's aiming at the heart and not, let's be sure we don't push aside his words by all these other qualifications that we want to talk about and just receive the fact that Jesus is aiming at an attitude in your soul. Just forget the righteous argument thing. Is there a thing? Yes, but just listen to what he's saying. He's saying that attitude in the heart is a wicked thing when it's a negative attitude toward other people. Jesus shows us that below murder and below anger and below abusive speech is a condition that doesn't fit with being his disciple. Jesus is aiming at the negative attitude that we have toward others, that murder and anger and sinful outbursts are merely the outworkings of a sinful attitude within our soul. And Jesus views it as serious. In fact, he says that a person who's angry enough to have these kind of things come out of their mouth is guilty enough to go to hell. Verse 20. Without the qualifications of all the other things that we could say about this, this is what Jesus says. He just leaves the word right there. And remember, this is how Jesus teaches. He doesn't tell us all the the exceptions to the rule and the scenarios that could come up. He just, this is how it is. This is what he wants you to hear. Because he's driving at superficial religion. And then he goes even further. He talks about the remedy. The remedy, he urges radical reconciliation. That takes precedent over worship. He says, if you're on your way to give a gift, verse 
23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is arguing that that there's something even more important than the giving of your gift. And even on your way to court, he says, be reconciled quickly with your adversary. Jesus is identifying here that there is so much more to righteousness than just not killing people. So, listen, to prop yourself up on the most extreme example of disobedience may help you feel better, but it only confirms how so far you are from righteousness. To say, well, I haven't sworn, I haven't told them everything I think about them, I didn't raise my voice, I wasn't angry very long. To find all the ways in extreme examples to justify, it just reveals how self-deceived we are. And who among us doesn't do that? What we need is to, to look at what Jesus says and to see what God is driving at, namely our hearts. We need Jesus to take different things, categories, thoughts, and just kind of put them together so we understand the implications, that we understand the implications of our hearts. And sometimes we just get in the normal everyday activity of our life, even in our Christian lives, and we don't realize the implications of things that are out there. There's a a girl in northern Indiana who understands some implications of things that she didn't this week, thanks to a phone call from me. She works at uh, Pokagon State Park, and that's where we're going on vacation this next week. And I don't know if you've noticed in the newspapers, but if the legislature doesn't agree on a budget on Tuesday, the um, government's going to shut down, including state parks. So if you know someone who could do something about that for us, I'd be grateful about it. <laughs> so I, here's what I did. I called, I called up to Pokagon State Park and got this nice girl on the phone. I said, hey, this is Mark, and I'm coming up you know, this week, and... Well, now, what's the implication of uh, the government shutdown and, uh, on the park on, on Tuesday? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be there already. Do I have to leave? And, and she's like, what are you talking about? And, 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 I, and I said, oh, you haven't heard that the government might shut down on, on Tuesday night at midnight? And she's like, no, it, that's just like all rumors. And I'm like, uh, no, it's, that's not a rumor. I'm, 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 actually, I'm actually looking at it on the newspaper right here. I can read it. No, 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 it's okay. I said, so, so here's the problem. I said, listen, listen very carefully. I said, if, if the government shuts down Tuesday night, you don't have a job on Wednesday. And then she goes, oh, my goodness. I, I got to talk to somebody about this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when you find out, would you call me, please? You know, so... <laughs> so there's things in her world that hadn't been put together yet, and when you put them together, it's, oh my goodness, i got a problem. And here's what happens. Jesus wants you to put together the heart and the commandments and to put them together to realize, oh my goodness, i got a problem. He calls us to see righteousness is supposed to come from the heart. So you ever found yourself saying, look, I'm not that bad. Not as bad as my dad. <laughs> not as bad as my mom now they were really ang- and what we do is we we justify do you ever find yourself justifying your anger or your bad attitude about people saying something like this well i wouldn't say these things if they weren't so are you waiting for reconciliation because quote they're the ones with the problem 
Do you justify internal bitterness because you never act on it? Oh, sure, I'm upset. But I don't do anything about it. Are you angry on the inside? Do you have a bad attitude about certain people, but you're just hiding it and justifying it? Jesus aims at the heart. He warns us that anger of the heart, attitudinal issues with people, is not the kind of righteousness that fits with the kingdom. And what he aims to do here is to show us what God really wants and at the same time show us there's no way that we can do this without him. So don't throw your hands up and go, this is impossible. I can't do this, because that could be another justification. But instead to realize, he wants us to realize and understand that we can't do this without him. Now the second issue is the issue of adultery. And once again, Jesus states the command. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is assaulting the notion that the only thing that God is looking for is just not having intercourse with someone other than your spouse. And he's he's assaulting that because... He wants us to know that real righteousness is not found just in not committing adultery. Now, he's not suggesting that adultery and lust are the same thing in terms of consequences. But what he is saying is that there is a righteousness that is underneath the command about not committing adultery, and it relates to the desires, and are you ready for this, and the intentions of the heart. So the problem is not just what we do physically. The problem is the intention of the heart. That's why it says, who looks at a woman with lustful intent. So Jesus is assaulting the look that leads to a physical act that comes under condemnation. And not limiting it just to a look that doesn't lead to an act. He's aiming at the look and the heart and the intention. He's going way down deep. What is he condemning? The word lust means to desire, and it's connected to the tenth commandment that forbade coveting your neighbor's wife. The structure of the language suggests that the focus is clearly on internal intent, to look at a woman in such a way that desire for her is aroused in him. So Jesus is concerned about the heart, the kind of heart that creates the intent to lust. A heart whose lustful intent is in his bullseye. Example. You're driving along, your car needs gas, you go to a gas station, you go into a gas station, as you're walking in to pay the bill, you notice that there's a magazine rack, and lo and behold, they have a pornographic magazine that's not covered. It's not supposed to, it's not where it's supposed to be. You see it, you look away, you pay your bill, and you get out of there. Great job. A week later, you drive by the same gas station, and you notice that your car is about halfway empty, and your mind begins to think of the magazine rack that you walked by last week, and so you decide, because you need gas, that you drive into the 
gas station, fill up your tank, and as you walk in, you look for the rack and look for the magazine that last week you looked away from. Question, where did lust happen? When you looked? I think there's an intentional issue that we need to think through about lust being an intention, not just an act. Another example. You got a Facebook page, and one of your friends is known for for posting um, some compromising and and rather provocative photos, and under the banner of, I just want to see what they're doing, you know the real reason why you're going to that Facebook page is to actually see the pictures that they're posting because you're curious. And the reality is you have very little interest in what's really going on. You want to see what they've posted. So where does lust begin? When you see the picture or when you put in their name and search? You've got a coworker at work. On a Monday morning, you notice that she doesn't have enough clothing on. And after an awkward conversation, you walk away and think, boy, I just got to stay away from her most of the day. How am I going to do that? And then as the day goes on, you begin to wonder, wonder what she's doing. And so you conveniently find a path to her cubicle as you're on your way to coffee. But she isn't there. So did you not lust? You see, these are the overwhelming issues that I think Jesus is getting after. He This is where, honestly, he breaks us. He breaks us because the problem isn't just the things that we do. The problem is the intention of the heart. And not only that, he calls for radical action. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand to emphasize the serious nature of this. So Jesus does two things. He drives it into the heart, but at the same time, he elevates the reality of what we should do in terms of our action. Jesus cuts through the societal toleration of lust as a sport or lust as advertising to remind us that this is serious and that real righteousness, listen, real righteousness exists in the heart. Real righteousness exists in the intentions of the heart. You don't have to be involved in ministry very long to know that this is the stuff of where we really live. If I took a survey of our counseling team of the issues that they deal with, this subject would be top on the list. And let me just caution you that when it comes to this particular area of moral and sexual ethics, that this is an area prone for self-deception and self-justification. Let me give you a couple cautions. This is from my heart to yours. These are, these are candid cautions. Be careful, unmarried couples, about defining premarital sexual purity as simply not having intercourse. Be careful about giving yourself one long look because you think it's the second look that's actually sinful. Be careful about justifying a drooling perusal of a magazine or a website under the banner of, it's not pornography, when it might be for you. Be careful about a heart bent towards a self-centered meeting of your own sexual needs while thinking no one is affected by what you do in private. 
Be careful about choosing your clothing. This is specifically to our ladies. Be careful about choosing your clothing, especially in the summer, based more on the attention you will receive for what you reveal than for what clothing is supposed to do, namely to cover your nakedness. It should not be that Sunday morning is a battleground for young and old men's hearts. And you can't say, well, if they look, it's their problem. And I would say, if they look at you, you've got a problem. Be careful of emotional or relational connections that you think they're not looks, but they come from a heart bent on lustful intent. Be careful about emails and postings that reveal too much that aren't a look, but still come from a heart bent towards creating desire. See what's happening? It is that Jesus is aiming for the heart. He's trying to show us that self-deception and self-justification yield a nasty harvest of superficial religion. Real righteousness from the inside out is what Jesus is trying to show us, and he uses anger and lust to show us that what God aims for is a righteousness that is so deep, so in the heart, so on the level of intent and attitude, that there's no way you can do this unless he helps you. So why does he use anger and lust? I think because there are few sins that are more common and cultural than these. Anger and lust are part of the air we breathe. So if you understand what Jesus is saying, if you understand the level that he's going to with this intention thing, if you get it, you will feel like you are going to drown and sink because there's this overwhelming sense of I If it's about the intention of my heart, I am spiritual toast. (laughs) I I can't do this. And if that's where you are, that's exactly where Jesus wants you. Because you ought to end up saying, Jesus, please help me. If listening to the Sermon on the Mount leads you feeling like, oh, okay, I can do this, you're not hearing him. If you hear this and you're like, hey, I don't have an issue, no sweat, you are not hearing him. If the issue is attitude and intention, we are all in big time trouble. And yet at the same time, Jesus is going to end, and to be sure he hits the nail right on the head, he's going to say in Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you can't throw your hands up and quit, and you can't just do things harder Jesus says this, come to me and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This doesn't feel like light stuff to me. But then he says in John 15, abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing. To know real righteousness means this, if you understand what Jesus is driving at, then this text should drive you to run to him. For you to say to him, you know my heart. 
You know the intentions. You know the attitude issues. You know all the junk. I can't do this unless you help me. So come, Jesus, help me. Remember, Jesus' aim is to shock us out of our superficial religion. And just because he doesn't give you three points and a particular strategy and all, doesn't resolve it, don't think that he's not going to eventually. Because the reality is, Matthew's intent is to show you something really important, and it's this. Listen, Jesus is the only one who can save you from your own heart. He's the only one who can give you any level of victory. He's the only one who can take the insurgent battle in your soul and put a greater power into your heart such that Jesus begins to conquer the vassal kingdom states in your life and you long for the day, more of you, more of you, come and deliver me from this body of death. It is what the Apostle Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? Who will deliver me from this scenario? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So don't hear the words of Matthew 5 as some kind of stick that you get beaten up over the head. Don't hear it as somehow these words that now make you think, oh, there's no way that it's even possible to live this way. No, this text was meant to drive you to your knees so you could look to Him and say, I need your help because my heart is so wicked. It is the hopeful words of Augustine who said, command what you will, but will what you command. I love that. Command what you will. Command me to do whatever you want me to do, but then help me, Lord, to do what you are asking me to do. In other words, the only remedy, the only remedy for self-deception and self-justification is the truth of God's Word and the justification of Jesus. If you having a good attitude with all people and always having a heart that's got every right intention dependent upon you, it would never happen. But in the justification of Christ, the forgiveness that affords us is not based upon us. Thank God that is the case. Our Lord aims to shatter our superficial religion, but he does not leave you destroyed. Rather, He aims to point you to himself as the only one who can help us with sins of the heart like anger and lust. He wants you to see that you cannot live without the invasion of his kingdom. You will not be able to be successful. You can make all sorts of rules and regulations to try and prop yourself up and justify your sins and deceive your own heart, but at the end of the day, you cannot make righteousness happen on the inside of your soul. Only Jesus can, and this sermon is meant to show you how desperately, how honestly, how deeply you need him. And so he says, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is king over the sins of the heart. Thank God he is. Oh, Lord Jesus, we um, we ask you to apply your wonderful word and your 
amazing candor. To our hearts that are prone to self-deception and self-justification, Lord, we, we need your help because we tolerate, we justify, we analyze. And today I pray you just cause us to receive the overwhelming sense of how desperately we need your help. And while we're just in a moment of reflection here as we end, this this could be a sacred moment for, for some of you today. This may be the message that God uses to show you you cannot do it on your own. And today could be the, the first day of a right heart where you receive Christ and pour your heart out to Him, that God uses the anvil of your lustful heart or your angry soul, and He uses that to show you, you cannot make it without me. Or maybe you, like me, see this text, and as you hear it, you just think, God, I've been a believer for how many years? And yet I've got a long way to go if this is the real standard. And maybe you, like me, would just say, Jesus, oh Jesus, would you help me? So Lord Jesus, we agree with Augustine, command what you will. But oh Lord, will what you command. Examine our hearts and then change them, we pray, by the power of your shed blood and your gracious power. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to you, God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, you did that. And so we rest in him. And we ask this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Love you guys.